Hello and thank you for joining for episode number 147 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we welcome Nicholas Danforth. He is non-resident fellow at the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy, visiting scholar at the Elliott School and the author of The Remaking of Republican Turkey, Memory and Modernity Since the Fall of the Ottoman Empire, which has just been published by Cambridge University Press. The book is a very impressive piece of work, upending conventional wisdom about many of the social and political shifts that occurred between 1945 and 1960, crucial years when Turkey held its first multi-party elections in 1950, and later joined the NATO alliance under the Conservative Democrat Party government of Prime Minister Adnan Menderes. We cover a lot of ground indeed in our conversation, but before we get started with the interview, let me remind you that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com. Also remember that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Turkey Book Talk members also receive PDF transcripts of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. Those transcripts are only in English from now on, no longer also translated into Turkish, but along with English transcripts of every new episode, you do also still get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not been previously published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of each episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's get on with our conversation with Nicholas Danforth. I started by asking why this era of the mid-20th century in Turkey is important to think about today and how he came to focus on it. So I very much stumbled into this topic. And I think, I suspect at least that anyone who writes a book about history does the same to some extent. Maybe there are people who can plan this all out in advance, who really have some vision for what they want to accomplish. Now, I was not one of them, whatever I wrote in my application for graduate school. In retrospect, of course, as with all history, you impose a narrative on why you chose a project and why in this case, it's worked out very well. I mean, I, this is a book about how Turkey became a democracy, how Turkey uh, became a NATO ally. When I started this 10 years ago, I didn't realize that both of those things would be quite as up for debate as they seem to be today. And I'm not sure in reality that my book can say a huge amount about why uh, these two processes are going in reverse right now. But, you know, these are the two most argued about facets of Turkish foreign policy, at least in Washington today. For people in the United States who care about Turkey, it's you know, Turkey's democracy, Turkey's foreign policy, Turkey's alignment with the West, what their relation with each other is. And so, you know, again, however unintentional it was, the fact that that's what I ended up trying to write about 
is yeah, has turned out to be, for unfortunate reasons, more pertinent than I expected it to be. So I want to come on to Turkey-U.S. relations in a bit more detail later on, but I'd like to start really by focusing on the domestic political issues that you talk about in the book, the domestic political issues that defined Turkey really in the 1950s. And I think probably the defining note running right through the book is your taste really for paradoxes and your eye for the ironies of history, really. Because you show throughout the book, through numerous, countless examples, how various supposedly rigid dividing lines and narratives are just very easily violated, actually. And that's important, I think, to note because it's very common, I think, to view contemporary Turkish history as being defined by these rigid opposites, these polarizations, the various camps with principles that are rigidly at odds. And that defines everything about what happens, you know, the classic ones, religious versus secularist. Uh, you know, Ottoman versus Republican, centre versus periphery, East versus West, all these dualities that are supposedly these rigidly at odds concepts. But in fact, you show that this era is really interesting because it just shows when you look at it very closely, how these apparently rigid divides are actually rather thin and uh, actually not very important even, ultimately. That is exactly, that is how, whenever I got into the 50s, once I started looking at it, Part of why it became so interesting to me, because so much of the conversation about Turkey in Western academia, but plenty of it in Turkish academia, when I started this project a decade ago, very much was looking at Turkish history through these binaries. And it wasn't that the historians themselves, the academics, who were using these binaries, it's not like they would ever say they subscribe to them. They were all very much about transcending them. You know, that it was a false divide between secularism and religion. It was a false divide between East and West. But in positioning themselves as transcending these binaries, they were very eager to write these binaries onto the intellectual history of Turkey and essentially accuse other people of having believed in these binaries. And so what was striking going back into the 50s is seeing, you know, not just, as you said, that these binaries are too simplistic. I think we all do realize, you know, the East first West thing is nonsense, that secularism versus Islamism, that, you know, it's much more complicated than that. But we still very much want to see other people having believed in these binaries. And so, you know, you did have this narrative that a lot of liberal, progressive Western historians bought into about Kemalism and about the creation of modern Turkey. And it was even telling in the words they used about being hyper-Westernization, excessive modernization, you know, imagining that what people like, you know, the founders of modern Turkey had said is, we want to be as Western as possible. We want to reject our identity. We want to reject who we are. We want to completely reject the Ottoman Empire. We want to betray our authentic identity to become simplistic copies of an imagined West. You know, there's so much criticism directed at the Kamalist project from historians was seeing them as these kind of cliches, these parodies of hyper-Westernization. That was an argument that had a lot of resonance amongst intellectual historians, and it was obviously an argument that worked very well. It was very effective in the political rhetoric of the AKP. And what struck me as soon as I started looking at the 50s was that it was much more complicated than that, not just in reality, but in the rhetoric of everyone who was talking about these issues back then. And that the very people who now we want to turn into these 
cliches of hyper-Westernization, these cliches of high modernism, themselves had much more ambivalent relationships about it. And when you look back in the 50s, look back into the 30s and 40s even, these people who were you know, now perceived as these kind of very pro-Western, anti-tradition, anti-Islam, anti-Ottoman Empire figures articulating much more nuanced views about it. And when you actually look at the the substance of what they're saying, you know, what they were actually saying is we don't want to ape the West. We don't want to abandon our identity and become cheap imitations of France. They actually would accuse other people of doing that to try to suggest that what they were doing was much more authentic. They were using, in many cases, the exact same rhetoric of the people who are now criticizing them today. And that, to me, was what was so fascinating. What for you are the most interesting or or significant concrete examples from this era that stand out as being, when you look at it a bit closer, they just upend the conventional wisdom? So the entry, the first part of this project was about the uses of Ottoman history during the Republican era. And there's a narrative that's everywhere that you see it repeated in the opening chapter of anything that talks about historical memory in Turkey, that Ataturk and the Kamalists rejected the Ottoman past. They wanted to make a clean break with the Ottoman past. You know, and that makes it sound like they had, they wanted nothing to do with the entire previous 600 years of Turkish history. And it posits everything Erdogan is doing right now. His love of Fatih Sultan Mehmet, his love of Yavuz Selim, the Meter bands that are everywhere, uh, the use of Ottoman rhetoric in Turkish relations with the Middle East, as if this is something brand new and uniquely Islamist and uniquely anti-Kamalist project. And of course, there's elements. Clearly, when Erdogan talks about the Ottoman Empire, he does it in an Islamist way. Often, his followers do do it in an anti-Ataturk way. But when you look at how they were using the Ottoman Empire in the 30s and 40s, they weren't completely rejecting it. They were using it in a very clever and very selective way. Uh, And what they did is they actually celebrated many of the same parts of the Ottoman Empire that people do today. They did write a lot of positive things about Fatih Sultan Mehmet. They did write a lot of positive things about what we now think of as the Golden Age, of the Ottoman Empire. And what they did was actually very clever. They said the Ottoman Empire, when it was at its strongest, when it was, you know, thundering at the gates of Vienna, it was ethnically Turkish and it was secular and it was a strong centralized state. And the argument, and you see this in historians from the Kemalist era like Afetinan, uh, saying that then what happened to the Ottoman Empire is it went into this fatal decline. It became more religious. It lost its ethnic Turkish character. It became more decentralized. And then it became, that's how it became the sick man of Europe. That's how it became this weak embarrassment that the Kemalist revolution had to sweep aside. And so posited in this terms, all the reforms that they were carrying out in the 20s and 30s, making the country more secular, making the country ethnically homogenous, making it a strong centralized state, were very clearly, in this historic narrative, their way of recapturing all the elements that had made the Ottoman Empire great when it was at its greatest. You also realize very quickly when you look at their the language that was used in the 30s and 40s in particular, is that they actually talked about what we would now call Ottoman history a lot. They just didn't call it Ottoman history. Now, you know, Ottoman gets used for any aspect of culture, society, daily life from the you know, 600 years in which the Ottoman royal family was ruling that empire. 
what the Kamala's rhetoric did was use Ottoman as an epithet for the elite, for the ruling family, for the ancient regime that they had just overthrown. And when they wanted to talk about all the good stuff from the previous 600 years, they just called it Turkish, not Ottoman. So you can read books from the 1930s about you know, Turkish architecture, which talk about all the beautiful Mimar Sinan mosques that you see in Istanbul. You can see books about Turkish folk culture, which talk about things like Karago's plays, which now are kind of thought of as Ottoman culture. Most notably, they did this with the military. You know, they were very proud in the 20s and 30s of all the military victories that had been won by the Ottoman army. They just talked about them as Turkish military victories. And when you lose sight of this, it makes a lot of what's happening now seem much more novel. Uh, and it makes any use of the Ottoman past seem much more inextricably linked with Islam uh, and with Erdogan's Islamism than it necessarily was. And, and the craziest example of this is the 1953 500th anniversary of the conquest of Istanbul. And again, when this has been written about, it's always presented as an Adnan Menderes project. It's always presented as, look, you had democratic elections, you had this new, more conservative proto-Erdogan government come into power, and they wanted to put on a big celebration of Turkey's Ottoman past for the first time. But when you look, the celebrations that took place in 1953, planning actually started in 1944 under the Inanya government. And when the celebrations took place, and they were huge, they lasted 10 days, there were garden parties, there were Air Force flyovers, there were marches, there were balls, there were costume pageants, there was a soccer match. I mean, it really was a huge deal. And yet, despite this, you still had members of the opposition, you still had the JHP parliamentarians accusing Menderes of downplaying the anniversary of the conquest of Istanbul, this huge moment in Turkish history, in order to appease the Americans and the Greeks. There's some evidence that the United States did kind of push him or made it clear it was happy to have him downplay the celebrations. Menderes actually went to the coronation of Queen Elizabeth at the time and skipped the celebrations in Istanbul, which he was criticized for in the opposition press immensely. You know, and so this wasn't, the celebration wasn't about conservative Islamism. It was about Turkish nationalism. When you look at the rhetoric, they tried to play up Fatih in the most Kamalist terms possible. They talked about how he was an innovator. They talked about how he was pro-Western. They talked about how he was the most secular-minded of all the sultans. They talked about how he invented human rights. They talked about, this was when Turkish troops were fighting in uh, the Korean War. They talked about how the Turkish troops fighting in Korea were defending the principles that Fatih himself had laid out 500 years earlier. You have legends about the ghosts of soldiers who died in the Ottoman assault on Constantinople appearing to comfort Turkish soldiers on the battlefield against the communists in Korea. They used the 1953 anniversary of the conquest of Istanbul to celebrate Turkey's NATO membership and to celebrate the Kemalist reforms. And they wanted it to be an opportunity, and they criticized the government for not making it into an opportunity to show modern Western secular Atlantic-oriented Turkey off to the world. Yeah, it's pretty dizzying stuff. It shows how you can look at history and completely adapt it and reinterpret it according to contemporary popular demands. And uh, that is not something that stayed in the 1950s. It's still there today. Indeed. Another particularly nice example I thought was about the Democrat Party's fulsome praise of Ataturk, first of all, but also it's uh, very harsh criticism of, uh, you know, the tyrannical despotism, as it saw it, of uh, Ottoman Sultan Abdul Hamid II. Anybody who knows how both of those two figures are kind of seen by various camps today might be surprised by that. 
Well, and that was another big thing that comes through, you know, so much of, again, the AKP's rhetoric, but also the rhetoric of historians who've looked at this period is about, and again, trying to turn Mandera's into a proto-Erdogan, trying to see him as simply the first step in this transition from authoritarian pro-Western Kemalism to popular, authentic, organic Erdogan-style Islamism. And obviously, you know, 10 years ago when people were more positive about Erdogan, this was seen as a much more positive step. Now it's looked at very differently. But right, what I'm trying to say is that you can't fit the 50s into that mold. I think what a lot of historians had done, and certainly a lot of politicians, had seen all of Turkish history as a referendum on some of the debates from the early republic and slotted the 1950s in there as you know, an inevitable step on, you know, and again, 10 years ago, they were looking at as this gradual popular religious rebellion against uh, the excesses of Kemalism. And read in those terms, uh, Mendra's era doesn't make any sense. As you point out, I mean, Jalal Bayar had been, had served loyally under the Ataturk government. Every opportunity that government had in the 1950s to celebrate Ataturk, they'd put pictures of him next to Jalal Bayar on there. You know, Mendrez was always very eager to praise Ataturk and more than that, to posit their democratic revolution as actually fulfilling the modernizing and westernizing promise of the Kemalist regime. And that pointing out to Turkish voters, not just that democracy was valuable in abstract terms, but democracy would give them, would enable the government to give them the kind of material progress that modernization had always promised them. This was also an era in which you had a huge amount of American cultural influence imported, and you had a promotion of a kind of consumerist society that in many ways was very irreconcilable with this image of kind of popular piety that we've projected back on the era. You know, when people write about the popular press in the 1950s, they've often done it in terms that suggest that as soon as Kamalist era restrictions on press freedom were lifted, the one thing everyone wanted to do was go out and buy Islamist and devotional magazines, that things like Necep Fazl Kusakurek's Biuk Do immediately became bestsellers. And when you go back and look at the things that people were, that were being published in the 1950s, I mean, yes, there was a fascinating explosion of Islamist and devotional magazines, but there was also a lot of softcore porn, and that seemed to be what people were buying. And you have jokes in the press about how, you know, everyone's pretending they're going out and buying Islamist magazines, but they're actually buying things like Plage or Chapkin. And from what you see, you know, at the same time, you have people in the Islamist press complaining that everyone's buying softcore porn instead of reading their magazines. You have people in the Islamist press complaining that actually their subscription numbers are dwindling, people aren't paying their debts, they're running out of money. Um, you see these really plaintive ads posted in some of these magazines saying, you know, literally, if you don't pay your debts, we won't be able to publish the next issue. And then sometimes there isn't a next issue. So in that sense, you know, the vision of modernity that people had in the 50s and the vision of modernity that the Democrat Party was explicitly promoting really has to be understood on its own terms. And it's an odd combination of things when you try to see it in you know, strict secularist versus Islamist binary. You know, you do, again, they were very much playing up that there was a new role for popular religiosity. 
but they also you know, were playing up a very different side of their culture and that that actually was what appealed to a lot of the Americans. You have Americans who meet with you know, members of the Democratic Party and say, ah, these people are great. They're just like American businessmen back home in Kansas. And part of that, ironically, was the superficial piety. Part of it was the kind of, you know, anti-communist religiosity. And part of the fact is they like to, you know, drink whiskey and go out to nightclubs. That was a unique vision of modernity that was very prominent and has been lost to history because it doesn't necessarily fit anyone's political agenda today. One of the things about the politics of history that struck me when I was writing this too is that you know, it's very easy to see how history is politicized by historians in the past and to criticize them for getting things wrong and to look at the way their mistakes, their biases, their ideological orientations led to bad political outcomes or perspectives. And what's more difficult for us to do, and what I think should make us a little more sympathetic to those early historians, is see how our own contemporary work gets co-opted, gets misused, ends up working for political agendas that we don't necessarily support. You know, looking at the way a lot of these historic binaries about Turkey were used by contemporary intellectuals, you know, it was striking that a lot of historians did, in very sincere ways, with their criticism, sometimes their exaggerated criticism of Kemalism, of excess modernization, of hyper-Westernization, uh, lay the groundwork and get co-opted by the Erdogan government. You know, and so you look at you know the work of a lot of very serious historians and how it, in sometimes simplified form, appeared in the New York Times in 2007, 2008, in a way that in retrospect really comes off like an apology for some of Erdogan's earlier undemocratic moves. And it's tough for us to confront the facts as historians that, you know, much as the people we're criticizing 50 years ago, I think, were, were serious historians who were trying to do their best and whose best ideas somehow sometimes led to bad results. And then the same thing inevitably, inescapably happens to us. And I don't know what the answer is to that. I mean, two of the main figures in this book are Bernard Lewis and Shukruhaniolo, who's at Princeton now. And you know, part of what I struggle with in this book is both of these guys are far better historians, certainly than I'm ever going to be. I think it's fair to say than you know most of my colleagues are ever going to be. Really masters at the craft, and yet both ended up being associated with political positions. You know, Lewis, the first, the kind of excess Kemalism, also his support for the Iraq War. Shukruhaniolu, I mean, the guy wrote for Sabah up until 2018. You know, it is and some of the stuff that he wrote about Gezi Park. You kind of cringe reading it now. You know, so they both ended up coming to political positions that I think most of us as historians, even as we recognize they're better historians than us, would still firmly reject. And so I don't know the answer to that. I mean, we all keep trying to write history. We all keep trying to do the best we can. And I, it's it's tough to do that with the knowledge that inevitably you're going to get it wrong. But that seems to be the conclusion. But maybe I'll be wrong about that. Is it fair to say that your approach downplays basically the importance of ideology? So ideology is not the thing that's motor in history. Obviously, in, in all these examples that we're talking about, it shows how ideology is infinitely malleable. And ultimately, ideology and principles are pretty limited in terms of how much they actually drive things. There's a nice quote in the book where you say, ideas prove useful only in so much as they have political resonance, which seems to be a kind of a, a, a motto for the book itself, really. No, and that was the disappointing thing about the book, the kind of silly thing about the entire project. I mean, right, it's a book about ideas, and the only conclusion I was able to come to at the end is they really don't seem to matter that much. At the end of the day, all of us, whether we're historians, whether we're politicians, whether we're journalists, we're basically too smart to let ideas influence our thinking. You know, if we 
if we want something, if we think something's a good policy, we can make that fit with whatever our broader ideological agenda is. So yeah, if everyone likes the Ottoman Empire, you come up with a Kamalist version of the Ottoman Empire, or you come up with an Islamist version of the Ottoman Empire, you come up with a multicultural version of the Ottoman Empire, you come up with a nationalist version of the Ottoman Empire, you rewrite history to fit your agenda. You know, similarly, I talk about there's been a lot of historiography about the influence of modernization theory and the obsession with trying to make societies modern and how that, you know, particular amongst American diplomats and social scientists, how that obsession with modernity shaped American foreign policy. And in very similar terms, when you look at the rhetoric in the 50s and how it was applied to complicated situations in Turkey, what you find is that American diplomats were pretty much willing to convince themselves that any Turkish government that was serving America's interests was a modernizing one, was a democratizing one. And in the late 1940s, they convinced themselves that Inanu's one-party state was a modernizing government, and they would have been, and it becomes very clear, I'll add this as a side note, it becomes very clear they were perfectly happy to let Inanu stay as dictator. They did not pressure Turkey to hold democratic elections in 1950. You know, but when he did, and when you actually had a democracy, they were excited, and they pointed to this as proof of Turkey's modernization. But then when Menderes became less democratic after 1954, they found new ways to work Menderes's newfound authoritarianism into their narrative about modernization. And then when he was overthrown, they just reconceptualized their ideas of modernization to explain why the new, still pro-NATO military regime was actually, maybe that was the best thing for modernity and democracy in Turkey. So it wasn't like they had some clear vision of modernity that made them prefer democracy or that made them prefer authoritarianism. They just adopted their understanding of modernity to enable them to work with whoever was in power and whoever was willing to do their bidding in Turkey during that period. So that takes us very nicely onto the next question and the next section, really, of the interview, because I want to now turn to the view from Washington during this era, uh, because obviously this was uh, the start of the Cold War. Turkey was joining NATO and uh, the U.S. angle is, to put it mildly, obviously a significant part of the story and a significant part of the book. And um, you examine the attitude of uh, U.S. officials, largely based on diplomatic and embassy archives. And again, those archives are also full of these paradoxes that we're talking about. It's really quite difficult to make uh, sweeping statements about what the U.S. attitude was to developments in Turkey at any one time in any one field, which is um, contrary, actually, to how most people seem to imagine this era, because uh, according to the book, you know, the U.S. was neither sneakily supporting Menderes to hold Turkey back in the hands of religion, as his critics might think. Nor was it deeply uh, concerned or plotting darkly to restrain the, the natural religious impulses of the Turkish people as the other side might see this era. So again, very complicated situation and not nearly as simple as uh, certain narratives would have it. And it's also, I mean, one of the things that comes through in the U.S. records, you know, again, you have people in Turkey who are convinced that the only reason Inanu held actual elections and stepped down is because of U.S. pressure. And then you also have people convinced that the United States was behind the 1960 coup. And what becomes clear from the U.S. archives is that there, neither of those was the case. And this isn't to make the United States out to be more benign than it is. You know, another point I try to make is that there were plenty of countries in which the United States did interfere with democratic elections, did hold coups. What stands out in Turkey is that 
you know, really at the end of the day, everyone was pro-NATO. So there wasn't really a reason for America to interfere with who came to power. And that by and large, they were, you know, to the extent that Turkey did seem to be uniquely democratic by the standards in the 1950s, the Americans were very pleased with that. It was actually an example of the world working the way they thought, that you had a country that was progressing towards democracy and naturally wanted to be a better friend of the United States. And this gets one of the things that I also try to make clear. You know, there's been a lot of criticism, especially as there have been subsequent coups in Turkey, of some of the romantic idealized language surrounding Kemalism in U.S. rhetoric about Turkey. And the suggestion there's a real hypocrisy to the way Americans praise autocratic modernization and praise Ataturk as an autocratic modernizer. And that this suggests that, you know, at the end of the day, people's views of Turkey and Turkish democracy have always been beholden to U.S. interests. And having just gone on at length about how in many ways they were beholden to U.S. interests, I also think it's fair to point out the flip side of that, which is when in the 1950s Ataturk got so much praise amongst particularly American intellectuals as an authoritarian modernizer, Turkey was one of the few countries in the entire world that had gone through authoritarian modernization and come out as a democracy. So the real kind of pro-Kamalist narrative of Turkish history that you get from people like Bernard Lewis Again, it's worth remembering that was written at a time when Spain was still fascist. Eastern Europe was under a communist dictatorship. Italy and Germany were only democratic because the United States had just invaded them. Turkish democracy really looked good in the world. And people were praising Ataturk as an authoritarian modernizer in the 1950s. I think that really reflected a sense that whatever had happened, however Turkey had gotten to the point where it was, there was something really remarkable there. And it was even, you know, more striking in regards to religion, even, you know, the gradual increase in public religiosity that you saw in the 50s, many Americans, even Bernard Lewis, it turns out, were actually very positive about. And they weren't saying, oh, this flourishing of religiosity proves that Ataturk's secularism was bad or was excessive. They saw it as a, a progression. They saw it as, okay, look, now that Turkey has gone through the stage of hypersecularism, now that it's benefited from that experience, we can have a more authentic, natural, real, organic form of religiosity. And that that, even going back to the 50s, even for people like Bernard Lewis, even for American diplomats, even for a lot of JHP members at the time, that was seen as the ultimate goal. You know, the goal wasn't this excess, extreme version of secularism. The goal was organic religiosity, which you could only get to by way of that secularism. You talk in the book about how many Americans in this era put forward Turkey as a model for the Middle East, basically. And that will obviously have very strong echoes later on in the early AKP era. Right. When, you know, there's been a lot written about how Erdogan and the AK Party were, were viewed as a model for other countries in the region. And, you know, people looking at that might think that, you know, in, over the course of five decades, barely anything changed. Right. And what's incredible is that the idea of Turkey as a model for the Middle East goes back not just to the 50s. Plenty of Kamalas are promoting this idea in the 1930s and 40s. Everyone thinks Turkey should be a model for the Middle East. People just disagree on what kind of model it should be. You know, so you have anti-imperialist Kamalas saying that, you know, Ataturk should actually be a model for uh, anti-imperialism in the Middle East. And you have Bülent Ecevit saying in the 1950s, you know, the problem is every Arab leader wants to be an Ataturk, but they don't have, they don't understand how Ataturk did it. You have Turkish feminists in the 1940s and 50s saying, 
Turkish women showed the women of the Middle East how to be free. This is a lesson they should take from us. Then as soon as Turkey joins NATO, you know, all the Turkish model for Americans becomes, hey, look, this is a country in the Middle East that likes us. And from Americans' point of view, I think the real Turkish model has always just been being pro-American. And so there's always, you know, depending on how Americans feel about specific aspects of Turkish society, they can make the Turkish model be as democratic or as authoritarian they, as they want. They can make the Turkish model be one of, you know, secularism, be one of moderate Islamism. The rhetoric that Erdogan used after 9-11 about Turkey as a model for the successful harmony between Islam and modernity, you know, that's what people focus on. And for the Bush administration, which was, quite frankly, opposed to secularism in the United States, they liked the Erdogan model. But immediately after 9-11, when you still have Bülent Ecevit in power, he comes to the United States and promotes you know, the Bülent Ecevit version of Turkish secularism as the ideal way for the Middle East to reconcile Islam and modernity. To the extent Turkey seemed to be actually reconciling all these cliches, to the extent things seemed to be going well in Turkey, both, I would argue, in the 1950s and again during the heyday of the AKP era, you know, it became very easy to use Turkey as a model for reconciling all these contradictions that it supposedly has faced. But of course, the specific reconciliation, whether it's a little more religious, whether it's a little more secular, whether it's a little more pro-American, whether it's a little more independent in its foreign policy, everyone supports the idea of Turkey being a bridge, of Turkey being a synthesis of all these different facets, uh, of being proof of the ability to reconcile all these different facets, but they just disagree on the specific model of how Turkey's doing that. Yeah. One of the um, one of the things that you talk about in the book, going back to the kind of nitty gritty of uh, what happened in this era, obviously Menderes was overthrown in, in 1960 in a military coup. And there is a certain conspiracy theory among a section in, in Turkish society that uh, sincerely believes that the US was behind that overthrow. And it's pretty counterintuitive because obviously Menderes is also seen at the same time as being a very pro-NATO, pro-America PM. But I suppose underli underlying that conspiracy theory is this, again, this rigid binary. They they think, well, Menderes, he appealed directly to conservative Muslim sentiment. So that must mean that he was East facing. And exactly. the corollary of that is that he must be skeptical of the West and the US. But as obviously we know, and as you show in the book, uh, the reality is uh, very different indeed and much more complicated. Yeah, and that still stands out to me as one of the more surreal conspiracy theories. Again, not because the United States was not holding coups in the 1950s and overthrowing democratically elected governments, but because, yeah, Menderes was still seen as a loyal ally of the United States. He just let the United States put nuclear weapons on Turkish soil without obviously consulting with the Turkish people. Yeah, and it is, as you say, it's about the desire to rewrite history you know, amongst contemporary Erdogan supporters to fit neatly with their own worldviews. I mean, yeah, it's surreal. People try to make Menderes into Salvador Allende when he was much closer to Pinochet. He was a right-wing American-supported authoritarian who, you know, supported, was a proud NATO member, supported free market principles. There's a story that the first thing the Turkish military did when they took the foreign ministry on May 27th was actually double-checked to make sure there wasn't a secret agreement between Menderes and the United States to hold a counter-coup in his defense if anyone tried to overthrow him. 
you know, people always make a big deal about how the first thing they did after the coup was announced that they were loyal to NATO and the Baghdad Pact. If you've cleared your coup with NATO, you don't have to announce that. The reason you announce that is because you worry that NATO is going to be, you know, hold a counter coup and you have to reassure them that, you know, you don't have to worry. We're still, we're still going to do what you want. And sure enough, you read the CIA report from immediately after the coup, and they're a little worried, and they ultimately conclude they think Turkish foreign policy is going to become a little less cooperative. You know, and then they do double check, and they find out that everyone involved with the coup, people like Alparslan and Turkesh, all studied in the United States and are all pro-NATO. And so then they think, eh, you know, this isn't what we wanted. We would have preferred Menderes stay in power, but we'll make this work. You know, and Kennedy, to his credit, when they're going to hang Menderes, calls and says, well, you know, we'd really prefer that you didn't, but, you know, they, they weren't going to push it. Yeah, I suppose, um, you know, some subscribers to that uh, conspiracy theory, they might hear that and think, um, ha, this American, of course, he'd say that. Um, actually, I don't think they will They will hear this because I don't think they'll be listening. But uh, <laughs> there's another thread uh, running through the book, throughout the book, through all the chapters, really, is um, Bulen Ejevit, future prime minister, of course, uh, in this era. And at this time, he was uh, really still just a young man, really, finding his feet, crafting his worldview. Uh, and he was a journalist uh, and also a kind of literary and art critic of some description when he wanted yeah. to be. And uh, as I say, he, he, you quote him throughout the book. And another interesting thing about him is that he went to the US during this period and he was very keenly engaged in many of the debates that you explore in the book. So uh, just talk about that. You know, what makes Edgevit such an interesting character? I mean, he's just an interesting character. It's incredible. I mean, the sheer breadth of things that he wrote about. I didn't set out to quote him throughout the entire book on every single possible subject, but it turns out whatever I was writing about, he'd, he ended up having a newspaper column about it, uh, and he ended up having something fascinating to say about it. And whether it was in English or in Turkish, it ended up being you know, impeccably eloquent, better than, you know, better than I could have written it. You know, I was a delight to quote him in English. I felt very self-conscious translating his Turkish because I felt like I was not doing it justice. You know, and he was so he came to uh, the United States in 1954 on a State Department funded scholarship program, essentially, to be an intern at the Winston-Salem newspaper in North Carolina. You know, this was an era in which America was trying to promote the American model of democracy to Turkey, the American model of modernity to Turkey. Uh, in which many Americans were convinced that showing Turkey the splendor of the American model would not just help Turkey become more modern, but make Turkey more pro-American. And so in that regard, Ejevit's fascinating because he comes to the United States. He has exactly the experience the State Department wants him to have. He loves it. Everyone who meets him loves him. You know, he's funny. He's polite. He's brilliant. He's articulate. You know, and yet he goes back and becomes a famously frustrating prime minister for the next generation of American statesmen to work with. You know, so it's on one hand just evidence that experiencing America, experiencing American modernity doesn't make you pro-American. But then also fun to see him use a lot of America's democratic rhetoric, use a lot of America's modernizing rhetoric to serve his own agenda, to criticize Menderes. You know, just a couple of weeks ago at the NATO summit, there was an article calling on NATO to take its democratic values more seriously and to punish governments, obviously like Turkey's, that are not living up to NATO democratic values. But then Ejevit essentially writes the same article in 1955. He's frustrated that, you know, America, which continues to preach democracy to the world in the 1950s, was clearly putting its own national interests ahead of democracy by turning a blind eye to, you know, the Menderes government, among other things, arresting people who, you know, were edge of its colleagues at uh, the newspaper Ulus. So the, you know, the variety of different ways that people could use 
modernizing rhetoric that people could use history. Yeah, I mean, even on the Ottoman stuff, obviously, so 1953, Turkey has this big celebration of Ottoman history in which it plays up multiculturalism and tolerance as defining features of the Ottoman experience. Two years later, you have brutal riots against Greeks in Istanbul. To my knowledge, the only person who ever makes a connection and who calls out the hypocrisy of this rhetoric is Bülent Ecevit. He writes a column after the riots titled literally Fatih Forgive Us about how the government has failed to live up to the Ottoman model of tolerance that it's promoting. And so that, I forget if I had any bigger point here. He's amazing. (laughs) It's actually, you know, also... (laughs) I'll qualify that because it's, I mean, it was interesting. I was also writing this during the Obama presidency and it's hard not to see a certain tragic similarity in that it's just to see people who are so intelligent, so articulate and to simultaneously be amazed by that and then see when they are given political power, that isn't necessarily enough to solve all of a country's problems. I don't know. Yeah. And the other thing about Ejivet is that uh, in the era that we're talking about, it was almost the golden era of Ejivet, wasn't it? He was like this young, interesting thinker and uh, an active participant, very energetic. But then by the end of his life, he was just this kind of man of the status quo and kind of embarrassing, really. So bringing things up to the the present day, I'm not going to ask you to predict uh, the future course of relations between the, the US and Turkey. But I just wondered, as I was reading the book, you know, considering just how frosty Turkey-US ties are today, I wonder if you feel or felt as you were putting together the book a pang, really, of nostalgia for this apparently golden era in uh, Turkey-US relations of the 1950s. It was an era when there was so much possibility, apparently, but it's obviously rather different today. I I definitely felt that pang of nostalgia for reading about the optimism people had for Turkish democracy in the 1950s. You know, some of the I start the book with the accounts, both from Turkish papers and from foreign papers about Turkey's first free elections uh, in May of 1950. And just the enormous, the enormous thrill, the enormous sense of, you know, optimism that there was there. I mean, yeah, that's hard not to. You know, as I said, I try to emphasize in the book that that was real, that actually I think Turkey has been a much more democratic country than some of its critics there and abroad want to make it out to be. And that the results of that democratic election, the impact of Turkish democracy, however imperfect it was over the last 70 years, have been really real. Uh, I try to emphasize that. But again, given what people's expectations were, given what people's hopes were, that, again, the stuff from the morning after the election is is painful to read now. And it comes to U.S.-Turkish relations, I think this actually made me less, you know, there wasn't a golden age. Even going back to the 1950s, things were much more strained. You already had criticism about American cultural imperialism. I think the first reference I saw, Turkey joins NATO in February 1952. By October 1952, uh, American diplomats are already saying the honeymoon is over. You know, when you find out, this is really striking, the fact that the Turkish government even let America have permanent military bases in Turkey was a surprise to some U.S. policymakers in the 1950s. They thought, given Turkey's concerns over its sovereignty, they weren't even necessarily going to do that. So in that sense, one of the things I do try to do, and this is, of course, all about how we revise history as the present changes, was show that, you know, anti-imperialism, suspicion of the United States these really do go all the way back to the beginning of the relationship. I said I wasn't going to ask you about the present situation, but uh, actually, why not? 
there is actually plenty of talk really about some kind of no, new modus operandi or kind of synergy really between Erdogan and Biden, which might be a bit surprising. They appear to have got off to a fairly moderate start, actually, contrary to what some predictions suggested. And there seems to me perhaps a move to compartmentalise problems, I suppose, would be the optimistic take and uh, focus on areas of cooperation. So the talk at the moment is about Turkey taking on a bigger role in Afghanistan because as the US withdraws from there, it needs somebody to take up the, the weight of that and uh, Turkey's ready to step into the breach. But obviously that's not the only issue. There's plenty of rocky issues that I'm not going to list here that everybody probably knows about. I just wonder how you see things developing. Have you been, first of all, surprised by how Turkey seems to have taken steps to kind of patch things up, or at least rhetorically it's changed rather than any concrete steps? But at least rhetorically it's kind of toned down some of the uh, rhetoric from before. Do you think that will continue to be effective or do you think that inevitably these things are just going to hit the rocks again as these many, many problems that are built up just inevitably re-emerge and um, cause more problems? I have a bunch of random thoughts about this. I can't come up with any plausible way to pretend they're connected to the broader subject of the book. It's going to be tough with Biden. I mean, you know, yeah, they had a con- they had a meeting. They didn't say anything nasty to each other. Um, they both have good reasons to try to keep things calm. You know, I would one historical president. I don't think obviously Biden is going to be willing to blow up this relationship over concerns about Turkish democracy. I think Erdogan knows that, you know, some of the cynicism that the Turkish government has about the United States and its role in the 1960 coup may be outrageous, but I think they have a very reasonable, understandable degree of cynicism when it comes to how much, you know, even Biden, who's been pretty good, you know, he clearly cares about democracy a little bit, but I think the Turkish government realizes that that's not going to be the end all and be all of his foreign policy. And that, you know, as Erdogan discovered with the EU, as long as he's not actively provoking, you know, a conflict with Greece and the Eastern Med, as long as he's not threatening to invade northeastern Syria, where U.S. troops are located, you know, it's not like closing the HDP is going to be what really causes the United States after all these years to draw the line. They'll manage to get along as long as Erdogan feels like he has to to avoid any major new crises at home. I think Biden is going to be grateful for the opportunity not to have to think about Turkey uh, and focus on more pressing uh, and maybe more positive issues. And then, yeah, I'm sure we'll have a crisis in another six months. I can't attribute that to any broader historical factors, but certainly, you know, the number of accumulated issues. Well, okay, look, I mean, there were a lot of issues during the Cold War, but there was a Cold War on. So both countries had good reasons to overlook all the many other issues they have. I do think, you know, go moderate historical scope, a lot of what we're seeing now is the result of the fact that after the Soviet Union, there was no, it was not as overriding of a shared national security interest to keep these two countries together. Yes, Russia is reemerging in the Middle East, but it's still not anywhere near at the level it was when the NATO alliance started. So in some very structural level, independent of all the identity stuff, that gives Turkey more flexibility whether it's using that flexibility wisely or not is a whole separate issue. That was Nicholas Danforth. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 147. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just 
pledge three dollars three euros or two pounds fifty per episode via turkey book talks patreon account also do rate or review turkey book talk on whatever podcast platform you use follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via twitter or via our facebook page or all of them and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any recommendations feedback or abuse to william john armstrong at gmail.com but until our next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks thank you very much for listening Thank you.